That song was written by Sarah's dad, uh, and I have recommended it not long ago. Matt Goins was asking folks with the loss of Jaden suddenly last year of songs that he recommended people to, to listen to that were an encouragement uh, to trust in God and at times of difficulty, and uh, I recommended that song because it's a wonderful song. Matt wrote it when Julie passed away, Sarah's mom, and uh, every time we sing it, I can't help but sing it and be encouraged that a man of God, a missionary of ours over in Hong Kong, uh, Sarah's dad, wrote that song, sung that song. It's wonderful, wonderful truth as well. Take your Bibles tonight, turn to Psalm 121. Uh, I have... I don't think tonight I've shaken anybody's hand. I don't think I'm sick, but um, I know I don't feel great. So uh, I didn't come to choir practice and sit with everybody and sing on them and cough on them. Uh, And so if I start, if I take to coughing, as they say around here, uh, just forgive me and uh, go ahead and read Psalm 121 to yourself and we'll be done. But uh, I think I can make it through. I'm not 100% certain it's not self-inflicted. On Thursday, I went and picked up a bunch of wood. I I changed my office at my house. We had some old kind of industrial... You guys don't care about this. Anyway, I I was working on woodworking in my garage on the snow day. So I had a propane tank blowing heat at me with a window cracked. I was smart enough to do that. And I had all the cars pulled out into the snow, and I was running um, boards through uh, my table saw and running my chop saw. Man, it was fun, fun, fun. And then I realized, I can't breathe. So I maybe, I'm hoping it's that. Um, some of you woodworkers are nodding your head yes, and some of you other people looking at me like, why are you using a table saw and a chop saw, a miter saw? That's the official name, by the way. I call it a chop saw, but uh, you know what it is. But uh, anyway, we'll get through it tonight. Uh, I may have to sniffle and sneeze. It hit me during the service this morning, early service, and I went back to my office, and Zach said, are you okay? Because I was just honking away, blowing my nose. And the second service, I think I made it through. I don't think anybody could tell. I had hand sanitizer, so every time I shook your hand, I'd, I'd try to do that. And if I ever touched myself, I'd do it again. So I think I'm clean. But after church, I'm not being rude. I'm probably just going to 22 skidoo on out the door and go blow my nose again another 100 times. <clears throat> Psalm 121 is where we are. This is what you came for, not for my sad story. Let's read. It's a great psalm of trust, all right? Let's read it together. The Bible says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Father, help us tonight as we now come to the Word of God. It truly is the help that we need in this life. The psalmist, as he's writing these words, is telling us that he's crying out to you for help. We can do the same thing. You will answer us through your word, and you will work in our circumstances of life. Help us to see this truth tonight as we learn yet to trust in you. 
Bless what is said and what is done in here and also in all of our classes going on right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we noted that the 15 Psalms of the Songs of Degrees were likely compiled as part of Hezekiah's song of praise to God for the miraculous recovery of his health. As he records, or as Isaiah records for us, the songs that were compiled are given to us in Isaiah 38. Here is the heart of the matter from Isaiah 38 and verse 20. The Lord was was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. This is when I believe these 15 psalms were compiled. Now, we don't know this definitively, but a lot of psalms line up with the events that surrounded the life and the times of King Hezekiah with the prophet Isaiah at his side. Last Sunday, we also looked at the seeming structure of these psalms, that they are grouped in five sets of threes. We said they were five sets of triads. The structure of each triad goes this way. The first psalm would be about the trouble. The second psalm would be about the trust needed to make it through the trouble. And the third psalm in the triad would always talk about the triumph that is ours because we trusted God in the trouble. So it is then that the songs of degree start on a very low note as we began last Sunday. In fact, about as low a note as you can find in this world. The trouble that we noted last week was a desperate tongue was crying out to the Lord. He says, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord. From lying lips. We noted that the desperate tongue was in such a state because of the deceitful and destructive tongue that was around him. We noted that that was likely Rabashaka, who was outside, the captain of the Assyrian host, who was outside the city in 2 Kings and in the book of Isaiah, and who was shouting blasphemies into the city, and everyone holed up inside with Hezekiah was likely saying, I wish this lying jerk would leave. And God led him home. He did do that. But these psalms, I believe, were written about that event and that time. The desperate tongue cried out, then called upon the Lord to act. So this evening, I want us to look deeper into the trust behind the call that was made out to the Lord in Psalm 120 and verse 2. As we read this psalm, I hope you picked up two voices and the point of transition between the two voices. The first voice is a voice of first person, I, mine, my. The second voice that we hear here is in the third person, thy and thee. This is an interesting take, if we will, or an understanding. I will lift up mine eyes into the heavens. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. It says he, but then it moves down and says, thy keeper, thy Lord. It sounds as if then Hezekiah is coming to a point of total trust in God that only he could solve this situation that was being sung about or that was being put pen to paper. And it seems that the second voice is Isaiah the preacher, Isaiah the prophet, who's coming in with truth and laying out for Hezekiah just the kind of trust you have to have in Almighty God. So there are two keys to trusting God over those who would lie about us and trouble us with a destructive tongue in our lives, we can learn. So in our notes this evening, if you'll follow along, we'll understand these. First, there is the aspect of building trust in God. 
In Psalm 121, we find that there is a process of building trust. It seems to build through the first two verses. These are the verses of Hezekiah. Perhaps better than any other passage in the Bible, Psalm 121 illuminates how God, the all-powerful creator and ever-present protector, is the only real and trustworthy source of help for our race. He's the only one we can turn to. Say, well, I can count on my friends. The answer is there may even come times where you can't count on friends. Well, my family, my spouse will never do anything. And the answer is the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I hope, I pray that I will always be a faithful husband and that you will always be in faithful relationships. But the only person, the only being that you can wholly trust on is God Almighty. And that's what this psalm is going to tell us. The psalmist is not necessarily desperate and doubting in this psalm. He is moved to trust. And so if it is compiled by Hezekiah, it's likely that in this process, he will tell us about a certain type of trouble, tell us about the trust that comes in it, and the victory or the triumph that results. By the way, even though he's not doubting or desperate, no one could blame Hezekiah (laughs) If, as he's writing this song, he remembers the times in which he was desperate, in which he was seemingly doubting or defeated. The psalmist is chronicling excuse me, the way his trust was built in God. How can you build trust in God? Well, it begins, letter A, by looking to God. How do I build my confidence in God? How do I build my trust? Well, it begins by looking. He says, I will lift up mine eyes. There are many times in your spiritual life that you don't even know where to start solving a problem. The only way to find help, the psalmist says, is just look up. Fix your gaze upon God. There are two ways in which he looks here. First, he looks to the hills. That's an interesting statement. I've heard some people have run to the hills. (laughs) Some people are from the hills. But here, the king or the writer or the psalmist is at least looking to the hills. By the way, when one looks to the hills, it depends on where you are. If you're in West Virginia, those hills go about 3,000 feet high. If you're in the Rockies, they go about 12 to 20,000 feet or however high they go in the Rocky Mountains. But the point is, is there's a difference sometimes between a hill and a mountain. But either way, if you're below, your gaze is up. As you look up, it leads his eyes to the heavens. When one would look up, and if he's in Jerusalem, he's likely looking out to the the Mount of Olives, looking up that way in which all of the prophecy would focus where the Messiah would eventually come to. In his day, the writer or the psalmist would understand that the hills brought water to them. When the rains fell, the streams trickled down and they were a life-giving source. The hills provided protection from enemies. Most of the best fortresses in this day, now today in our modern combat, we don't think of building a city on a hill as a great fortress. It's an easy target for a rocket. But in their day, that wasn't the case. A hill was a place of security, of safety. It was a place in which they could go for protection, which, by the way, is the core message of this psalm, that God is our protector. But ultimately, the hills lifted their eyes 
to heaven. God's place is beyond the heavens, unbounded by the heavens, but he does reside in heaven. The Bible teaches us, in fact, of three heavens that we look to. We live, or at least can jump, into the atmosphere. That's about as high as we can get. We can get in an airplane and fly into it. Now, if you're really brave or stupid, depending on what kind of person you are, you can get in some private entity space shuttle or, or, or ship and go into outer space. That's the second heaven. And then the third heaven, Paul tells us about, is where God himself dwells. The Bible tells us at certain places that there is a watery place. I don't even know what water means. Wes and I were talking about this just recently in our study of Genesis chapter 1. But there is a region beyond the vacuum of space where only God dwells. The Bible tells us this. It teaches us this. And here we find that the writer is lifting up his eyes and he's looking to a source of help, expecting life to flow down, help and protection to be provided to him. He looks to the hills, but the second thing he looks to is he looks for, excuse me, is help. Recognize tonight that God wants to help you. I don't know what your trouble is or what your troubles are. But what you must understand from this psalm is that if you are a follower of God, if you are a believer in Almighty God, he does want to help you. It is the most essential element of building trust in God is believing that He is a good God, a God looking to bless us. The human tendency is to look for help in every wrong place, we might say. We try to solve our problems in our own strength or according to the wisdom of the world. We, we phone our parents or we, we look up to those that are mentors or we ask a friend at work. We seek success and self-esteem in our careers. We turn, perhaps some have, to drugs and to alcohol to fill the emptiness inside. We attempt to find happiness and sometimes just even a way to cope by experimenting with everything the world offers us. But what is the truth about all of these substitute helps? They all fall short. They don't give the kind of help that only God can give. So he does the right first thing to build trust in God, and that is look to the right source. Sometimes we can be looking at the right source, but we don't have the right motivation, which leads us to our second thought, and that is this. There is a longing for God. Some people look to God, but they blame God for everything. What the psalmist is doing in these first two verses is he's looking to God for his help, but he's longing for God to help him. Do you want God to help your troubles or do you just want to complain? I can tell you many times as a pastor when I've sat down with folks who are mad as a hornet at God, I will start by saying, do you really want help from God or do you just want to yell at him right now? I remember the first time I ever said that to someone. They go, I said, you can do that, but be careful because sometimes he yells back. 
There has to be a genuine longing in our heart. That doesn't mean that even now or even then, I should say, the hurt from a troubled past or a troublesome event or a tragic story, that the hurt goes away. But there has to be proper motivation. There has to be a longing that God is being invited into your life to help, not just being yelled at by you. He looks to God, but he longs for God to be his helper. My help cometh from the Lord, he said. It's an emphatic statement. He's not looking to anyone else for help. He's looking only to God. The psalmist longs for God to engage in his life. He longs for God to act on his behalf. He longs for God to be real in his life. The reality is most of us in our life, when trouble comes, we don't long for God to do anything. We just want him to hear us complain. The power in this psalm is that the trust we have in God builds, first by looking to Him, second by longing for Him to engage. Unfortunately, for so many of us, God is abstract. Somehow estranged from much of our daily living. So when troubles and trials come, He's so distant from us, we don't even know how to long for Him. We grind through a work week completely oblivious to God or anything that's related to Him. Then a week becomes a month which leads to year or years without a deep longing and relationship with and for God. May I suggest trouble that leads us to trust revives a deep longing for God. Again, if our writer is Hezekiah... They're in trouble. I mean, his father was one of the most wicked kings, but Hezekiah is a good king, one who followed God. And as such, he restores proper worship of God. He is doing right things within the kingdom, and trouble comes. You say, well, but he had a good relationship with God. That's right. Sometimes just the religious formality can be just that, formality. I don't believe it was if it was Hezekiah. But it certainly can be the case for us. This is one of the core reasons why God allows and often brings trouble into our lives so that we would have a deep need and longing for Him. I wonder the longing of this writer, if there had not been real trouble... In his life, building trust involves looking to God, it involves longing for God, and finally, it involves, let her see, learning about God. This is all just from the testimony of the first person here in verses one and two. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. Now, here's the final statement which made heaven and earth. Every trial, every trouble that comes into our life can teach us about God. It's why they are there. It's not just because God is some angry, maniacal monster that lives in heaven and says, I want to smite you or strike you with this plague. No, God is bringing trouble into our life so that we might draw nearer to him so that we might learn to trust wholly in Him. And what the writer here is telling us is that he had a general knowledge of God. The psalmist knows the obvious general lesson about God and that that He was the Creator. 
God was the one who made the heaven and the earth. That's his statement. He had a general sense of who God was. He had learned that lesson. This lesson, whatever the liar was, whatever the destructive tongue was from Psalm 120, the obvious lesson in this is that the creator of the universe now cares personally for me. You see, if I say, I know God's the creator, well, God is an abstract again. He is out here in a general sense. I know about him. But through the trials of our life, the troubles that we face, the difficulties that we must endure, it is in those trials, those difficulties, those problems that we become very intimately aware that he cares for us. That's what trouble will do for you. It will teach you that God cares for you. Think about this thought then. The Creator God made every star, every galaxy, every burning orb in space. They are all object lessons in the sheer physical power and energy of the almighty nature of God. Take our sun. This is the latest high-definition picture from the Inoue uh, orbiter. It goes literally, it's the f- closest flying satellite that will go to the sun. It will literally be able to te- touch with its heat shielding the outer corona of the sun. That's amazing that we can do that. This is a high definition picture of it. Now, some of you are looking at that picture and you go, yes, Kyle, I get it. That's our sun. I see it every day. You can see the storms and the swirls. You can see the power in the explosion. You can see the magnetism in the waves and the lines. The next picture is even more compelling. Mark, I think we have that one. This, <clears throat> this is a picture of the sun. Again, a little bit more abstract in its nature. But if you look at that little square that is popped out for us, that little square is 4,600 kilometers across. The little square within the little square, that's the state of Texas on our sun. The little square or the little divot inside the one little black vein of the sun is the city of New York. It fits in there. And the point I'm trying to make is this. The creator God that made these made a ball of fire that astronomers classify as a moderate star. It has a diameter of 864,000 miles, but all of it is gas. I don't know if this is good math, but this is the way it was explained to be. Two billion, billion, billion tons of gas make up our sun. Over every square inch of of it, the core presses down a crushing weight of a million, million pounds of matter. It is all being drawn to the core at that weight. The gravity is intense. The only thing that keeps the sun's core from collapsing is the energy explosion itself. We call this both fission and fusion, the counterbalancing of the sun, how God's designed it to stay together. These are inconceivable floods of energy that raise the sun's internal temperature to 25 million degrees Fahrenheit. The sun consumes 657 million tons of hydrogen each second. The sun can still go on burning for another 50 billion years. 
in its present state. And that's just one moderate star. The amount of energy, by the way, being put out by all of the stars of heaven is beyond human calculation. We don't even have enough numbers for it. The God who made that cares about your trouble, the psalmist said. So stop tonight and think of whatever trouble is first on your mind. I like to do this often, especially on a Sunday night. I like to take some time and pause and just think. I'm not asking you to yell them out to me, but I want you to think. If we're going to be built up in the most holy faith, that's what Sunday night preaching is about, and the teaching is to edify, excuse me, edify and build up. Think of your trouble, whatever your trouble is right now. Now, I want you to also think the God who created the entire universe, the universe of stars, just like the one of our own in our own solar system. Think how that God can help you in that problem. Yeah, I wish he would just strike them to know. (laughs) I wish God would just... It's okay to muse with God. When we learn about God and we learn that God cares about us, then we can begin to have intelligent conversations with Him. Do you know that's why God created you, is to have an intelligent conversation with Him? It's okay in your time of trouble to say, God, I don't understand this, but I know you and I know who you are. That's what the psalmist has just done. I'm trusting you. I know who you are. And I know that during this trial, through the, throughout this trouble, you're going to be there with me. Because the sun is still shining, I know that you'll be with me through all of my own troubles. Now, I want you to notice, I didn't say solve the problem to your liking. That's what we have to be careful. God, I want you to solve it my way. Well, you're not God. He is. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows your end from your beginning. If this again is Hezekiah that's writing this, he was probably hoping that a group of holy angels would swoop in and destroy the Assyrians. God had a different plan. He called Rabbashekah home where Rabbashekah was killed and the king of Assyria himself was killed by his own son. God's got a different plan, but whatever the plan was, it was different than what Hezekiah was thinking in that moment. Our trust is in the fact that God can and will help us in our troubles. Please be careful, by the way. As God takes you through trouble, never miss the lesson about Him in those troubles. One of the hardest truths that I ever had to come to understand in my life is that if God brings a particular trouble into your life and you fail to recognize his help in that trouble and fail to learn about him as you go through that trouble, through that trial, it's likely that God will have to bring that trial or that trouble again into your life. You have to learn to trust in him. So this second song of degrees sets forward a building of trust in God amidst our troubles. To do this, the writer offers three believable truths, number two, about God. The rest of the psalm then breaks down into two verse segments for us. It shifts from the first to the third person. 
It seems as if some teacher, some preacher, some person of counsel and wisdom has come along, and while the psalmist is saying, I will look, someone who is an instructor has come along and said to him, here's what you need to believe. Here's what you need to trust in. Here's how you have to view God. It's interesting, by the way, in verses 3 through 8, the words keep, keepeth, keeper, and preserve are all the same Hebrew word. It is the word samar. The word simply means to guard or protect. These are truths then based upon God's protection of those who are His. The psalmist is telling us, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of God, as the psalmist would know it, then you can trust that God to protect you. That's why he keeps using that word over and over and over again. Six times in these few verses. David would have known this. Solomon would have understood this principle. But Hezekiah clearly experienced this psalm. What he needed was protection from those who were seeking to destroy him. What Isaiah, it seems, gives to Hezekiah are three believable truths about God's protection. Letter A, he stabilizes us. He stabilizes us. The Bible says, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Now, I don't know how many of you struggle with the cold weather and icy conditions and walking. My guess is, if you're above the age of 50, it might be you. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, I'm 47, so I'm getting there close. I'm almost in that group. And I'm still a little worried. When I got out of my car down by the van this, this morning in the early hour of about 8.15 when Drew and I got here, there was snow and ice there. And I told Drew, I said, I'm going to back up and pull back over so I don't slip on the snow. And I knew my teenage son was like, Dad, you're an old man. How do I come on? You're, you're better than that. I'm getting to the age and the stage that I don't want to pull something, right? I don't, I don't want to have an injury that I've got to heal up for them for the next six weeks or six months. We understand what it means to have our foot slip. It means we're not stable. We're not able to hold our position. The king here has taken a bold stand, trusting that God will deliver him. That's what he said in verses 1 and 2. I trust God, you will be my help. That's a good place to be, to trust God. God's teacher responds by saying, he will stabilize you. The result of that trust in God is that the hope, the confidence will bring stability. The writer's Here, excuse me, the writer here takes his courage in the fact in the Lord knowing how easy it is for us to slip and fall back into sin, to fall back into a doubtful position and a lack of trust in him. We all know how often we have second thoughts after making some bold commitment to God, don't we? All right, God. I know you're doing this. I know exactly what you're doing. I'm ready to go. And it doesn't go exactly to our plan. Then we say, but God, I I thought I knew you. And he says, no, no, you're not going to have any reason to slip. Just trust me. Let me take care of the details. Don't you plan the details for me, God might say. But if you'll just trust me, I will make sure that you're stable as you approach this life. 
The believable truth is that God will make every part of himself available to you to keep you from doubting or departing from him in your times of distress. There's also an amazing awareness that is here. He that keepeth thee will not slumber, he says. In verse 4, behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Boy, that's reminiscent of Elijah, isn't it? That's reminiscent of up on, on old Mount Carmel. And they're there with the wicked prophets of Baal. And he says, hey, perhaps your, your God's on an adventure. Maybe he's out hunting. Hey, maybe your God's asleep. And by the way, they would often say in this part of the world, in this day and age, that if a God didn't answer, it was just because he was busy right now. And what the psalmist is saying is, your God's never too busy for you. You have doubts. You have dark thoughts about God and his goodness. Come back to his book. Trust wholly in him. And that will bring a stability to your heart and to your life. Letter B, he doesn't just stabilize us. He shades us. Now, none of us right now needs to sit underneath an umbrella and be shaded. But I tell you what, if I was preaching this message in the middle of July, you would say, that sounds pretty good right now. Some lemonade too, please. What does it mean that he shades us? That's what he says in verse 5. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Now, I don't know how many have ever had moonstroke, but apparently that's what he's talking about. I'll talk about that in just a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself here. The Bible here says he shades us. It was and is needed for the Middle Eastern king to have shade. Sunstroke is real. Anybody ever had a touch of heat stroke? All right, you're sheepishly waving your hand at me. How many have had it? I've had it. I one time was so foolish in my high school years. Maybe I was in college. I can't remember. My mom will have to tell me. Um, I think it was high school. I played three soccer games, full you know, 90-minute soccer games on travel teams and stuff like that, and I did not drink enough. And they had to go to the hospital and put like two liters of fluids back into me because my kidneys were so dehydrated that as a young man, I was like, oh, I'm in bad shape. And I was out of my mind crazy. Right? I needed a little shade and a little brains, but I needed a lot of shade. Okay? Can you imagine being a Middle Eastern king and talking about shade? Sunstroke or the sun that is striking them here, brings headaches, dizziness, and confusion. It is a physical danger to the human body, especially in the region of the writer. The one that was an oddity to me is moonstroke. Have anybody ever heard of getting moonstroke? Yeah, I, I hadn't either, but I did a little research on this. This is fascinating. Some of you will walk out of here and think I'm moonstroke. I don't even know if that's the right way to say it, though. There's an old wives' tale about doing wild things on a full moon. Well, you know what? Last night must have been a full moon. Why did you say that, Dad? Well, because people were doing weird stuff. Well, do people do weird stuff on a full moon? And all of us would say, yeah, it kind of seems that way. Okay. The second thing that I looked up was this, that there is a medical condition with the phases of the moon. It's got a really great Greek name that I cannot say to you. It's Selenia something, 
Selenia plexia, I think is the name of it. It's linked to our circadian rhythm of our bodies, which makes people have a higher prevalence for actual strokes with the phases of the moon. It's amazing how true the Bible always is. But I think the reference has to do more with the spiritual realm. Do you know where the word lunatic comes from? From the Latin word luna. Some of us understand that there's a lunar cycle. It's the same root word for lunatic. Lunatics are real. And they're everywhere. Right? And some of us are those lunatics. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Can I get an amen? No, all right. I'm not going to go that far tonight. I think God is setting the stage here in this psalm and saying to us as a shade that God is going to prepare and provide for the physical man and the spiritual man. The psalmist is, is free physically from fatigue, the sunstroke, and he's free from freaking out with all the lunatics around him of the moonstroke. It's interesting as well, the shading here is on his right hand. Specifically in the Bible times and in the feudal times all the way up through King Arthur and, and and the kings and the kingly lines in Europe, the right hand is the right hand of authority. It's power. It's where the uh, structure to speak, or if you were a spokesman, they would sit on the right hand. That's why Jesus is always seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He is the mouthpiece. He is the person of the Godhead that speaks to us. And so he says, the shade is on our right hand. Well, the word shade here is very interesting because it has the idea of protection. With all the other protection words that are used, it gives us another sense of the protection. It has the idea of running into a cave, running under a tree, running to somewhere, whether it's a physical trial or a spiritual trial, and coming under the protection of Almighty God, His authority, His provision. Essentially, God takes up an overshadowing place of authority in our lives when we learn to trust in Him. That is His shade. It is under the shadow of the Almighty that this psalmist rests. The psalmist earlier would write either this same psalmist or a different one in Psalm 91 and verse 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. His right hand will take care of our right hand. God will always take care of us. Often we trust into the strength of our own right arm. That is wrong. It will fail you. We must trust in God's power and in His ability. It is God who is the giant on any battlefield of life. He is the solution to our problems in life. Never discount the shade of the Almighty God. John Phillips in his commentary says this, Our weakness... Our weakness is offset by God's strength. He deliberately takes up a position from which he can defend us, no matter from which quarter the attack comes. Phillips goes on to write, And we never know where the attack will come from. Sometimes from our family, sometimes from a friend, sometimes the enemy attacks along the line of our weakness, which he knows all too well. Sometimes he attacks at the point of our strength. Elijah's strong point was his courage, yet he felt... He fled in abject fear to little old Jezebel 
after Mount Carmel. Moses' strong point was his meekness, yet it is when he loses his temper, he smites the rock that he's no longer allowed to enter the promised land. Phillips concludes, Abraham's strong point was his faith, yet down he went into Egypt in unbelief. Be careful when you trust your right hand. Let God shade it. Let him secure it. Live under the power and the shadow of the Almighty. Because we are all vulnerable, we need the Lord to stand on our right hand with His right hand stretched out to defend us. Truth number one, God stabilizes us. Truth number two, God shades us. And finally tonight, God settles us. In verses 7 and 8, the Bible says, The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. Now, it's very interesting. Read very carefully the Bible. Don't read in what you want it to say. Nothing bad's ever going to happen to me. That's a lie. Bad things happen to good people all the time. It's just happened to the psalmist. So what's he saying in verse 7? Or if it's Isaiah teaching, what's Isaiah teaching him? The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. The evil may happen to you, but the evil doesn't have to change you. It doesn't have to affect you. What is the ultimate preservation here at the end of verse 7? Our soul, our inner man. The Lord shall preserve thy going out, thy coming in, from now, from this time forth, and even forevermore. The message goes from the pure physical to the focus on spiritual. It goes from the material to the eternal. It goes from the temporal to the divine. The reality of God settles our soul, the writer says. The just fact that he is real and that he really wants to be a part of our life. When we trust God, there's nothing coming or going in this life that should cause us to be distressed. That doesn't mean that they're not difficult, but nothing should cause us to be distressed. Wherever we go, whatever we do, however life changes, we can be settled in our soul that God is for us and that He will preserve us. Again, I know I'm making some statements of fact that this is Hezekiah and this is Isaiah. It may not be. I think it is. In Isaiah 50 and verse 7, here's what Isaiah would later write. And boy, it sure sounds like the guy that figured this out or at least was teaching the other guy in this psalm. He says, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, shall I not be confounded. I'm not confused anymore. I'm not sunstroke. (laughs) I'm not moonstruck. Therefore, he says, I have set my face like a what? Flint. Do you know what you sharpen a knife on? Flint. It's one of the hardest rocks that you will find. He says, therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be Ashamed. Boy, that sounds like what this psalmist believed. It sounds like what this psalmist was taught. Last week, trouble. This week, trust. I cannot wait until we get to Psalm 122. I mean, if the trust is this good, imagine what the triumph's going to look like. It's the beauty of these psalms. 
especially the songs of degrees as, as they build upon each other. God is greater than just our simple trust, and so He gives us triumph as we trust in Him. Father, help us tonight as we close.